in the Bible. It says, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth in Judea unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you, you shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. I've entitled today's sermon, Peace on Earth. And you know, we can't enjoy the Christmas season, would it not be, for Jesus Christ's birth. For the birth of the Savior. And you know, in, in, in the Old Testament, there, there are prophetic uh, pictures to the coming Savior. And we find those back in the book of Isaiah as Isaiah speaks to Jesus Christ who would be coming someday. But Isaiah also speaks to the turmoil that was going on in the nation of Israel at that time. In Isaiah's days, the, the nation was experiencing great turmoil. Turmoil actually very similar to some of what we experience today in our own country. Paganism and religious tradition had become intermingled. And uh, we see that today, don't we? We see denominations and congregations and pastors who have quickly moved from biblical instruction to grabbing hold of every wind of change that comes down the way and have changed to match the world instead of standing strong on the principles of God. And so we see that in our day. And the problem with that mentality uh, the, is that it brings uh, both darkness and it brings problems and turmoil and tribulation. We see that in Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 29. It says, and they shall, uh, verse 21, excuse me, and they shall pass through it, hardly bestead and hungry, and it shall come to pass that when they shall be hungry, they shall fret themselves and curse their king and their God and look upward, and they shall look unto the earth and behold trouble and darkness and dimness of anguish, and they shall be driven to darkness. Now folks, I don't know about you, but when I look at the state of our world today, that description fits it pretty well. Darkness, trouble, anguish. These are all things we see in society today as the world has turned its back so much on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's how it was in Isaiah's day. Both kingdoms of Israel at that time, we have a divided nation during the days of Isaiah, but both kingdoms were experiencing this darkness. The southern kingdom 
was ruled by a completely faithless king in King Ahaz. And then the northern kingdom uh, had suffered greatly at the hands of the Syrians and then the Assyrians. And so both kingdoms of Israel at the time of Isaiah's writing were experiencing great turmoil and struggle. And you know, I don't know about you folks, but when, when I personally experience those times in my life, when, I, when I'm going through times that I struggle and it just seems like there's, there's darkness and trouble and anguish and turmoil, I, I do what many people do, and that's we do what? We look for what? Light at the end of the tunnel, right? We all understand that saying. When things are, feel like they're crashing all around us, when things feel like either in my personal life or in the life of my nation or the life of my friends or my family, when everything seems like it's crashing down around me, I'm looking for a light at the end of the tunnel. Something that's going to bring a difference. Something that's going to pull me out of, the, of this despair and this, and this anguish and, 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 and this troublesome time. And as we continue to read in Isaiah and go into chapter 9, we see this dramatic shift in what he's just been writing about. He ends chapter 8 and he says, you know, there's trouble, darkness, dimness of anguish, and they shall be driven to darkness. And then there's a word that starts chapter 9. And the word is, nevertheless. Nevertheless. Here's all this darkness, here's all this dimness, here's all this everything going on, but Isaiah says, I've got something else to tell you. What does he say? The dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation when at first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan and Galilee of the nations. And then he says this, the people that walked in darkness. That's Isaiah 8. Darkness, trouble, anguish. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. See, folks, you think about Isaiah writing this, and he's looking at a nation that has been torn apart because of their own sin, nonetheless, but they have been torn apart. They've been, they've been given to the hand of, of evil empires to, to, to wreak havoc among the nation, and Isaiah's looking for the light at the end of the tunnel. He's saying it's darkness, it's dim, it's troublesome, there's anguish, and he says, nevertheless, there's a light, and the light has shined on them. So, what changes between Isaiah 8 and Isaiah 9? The change, folks, is Jesus Christ, the light of the world. That's the change. The changes were living in darkness and anguish and vexation. And all of a sudden, there is a light. I see a light at the end of the tunnel. What is the light? The light is Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. That's what he's talking about. They've seen a great light. You know, Jesus Christ himself, speaking in the book of John, in John 8, chapter 12, he said, I am the light of the world. 
That's how Jesus Christ described himself. See, folks, when we're in the tunnel and it's, everything's caving in around us and everything looks desperate and everything is in turmoil. And, and listen, folks, I know we all experience this. We sat in the back room in the fellowship hall on Wednesday night and, and we made a prayer list that literally was a mile long and we didn't even have that many people here Wednesday night. There's a lot of stuff going on in people's lives. There's a lot of turmoil. There's a lot of struggle. There's a lot of darkness. And so just like Isaiah, we need to be looking for the light at the end of the tunnel. And Jesus Christ said, I am the light at the end of the tunnel. I am the light of the world. John chapter 1. Oh, we're familiar with John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was what? The light of men. And the light shineth in darkness. Isn't it great, folks? Whenever it's dark, that's when we can see light more clearly. You ever thought about that? The darker it is, the more the light shines. It's true everywhere. In a dark room, on a dark road, the darker it is, the brighter the light shines. Listen, folks, we're, we're in a time frame in our nation that I just believe is, is unprecedented with wickedness. We live in a society that wants to do away with everything that pertains to God, that wants to live outside of the, of, of the structure that God's given us for everything in our life. And it's dark. It's dark. But Jesus Christ is the light of the world. Exchanging darkness, dimness, and gloom for light. And that's what we're going to talk about as we continue to look at this passage in just a few minutes. At this time, we're going to sing a hymn, and then Alyssa has a special for us. Well, as Isaiah looked to the darkness and the dimness and then saw that light as he mentioned in the beginning of chapter 9 of Isaiah. Jesus Christ being that light brings great blessing. And as we continue to read in chapter 9, he says, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Thou hast multiplied the nation and not increased the joy. They joy before thee according to the joy in harvest and as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. So we get two illustrations that everybody on earth can understand. What benefit, what joy does the light of Jesus Christ bring? It's the same kind of joy that a farmer experiences when he has a great crop for the year. When he goes to harvest the crop and the crop is full and fills his barns and the farmer is joyous because of the crop. And then it's also the same kind of joy that we see when armies go to war and win the victory and come back with the spoils of war, with the wealth as they did back in Bible times, they would take the wealth of the land that they had conquered and the joy as they come back from battle having won the victory and carrying into town the spoils of war. 
And that's the same kind of joy that Jesus Christ brings. It says, For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. Jesus Christ brings joy. Psalm 5, if we just turn over there for just a moment. Psalm 5, and starting in verse 1. I'm sorry, in verse 11, excuse me. Psalm 5, starting in verse 11. It says this, it says, But let all those that put their trust in Thee, what? Rejoice. Let them ever shout for joy, because Thou hast defendest them. Let them also that love Thy name be joyful in hope. For the, Thou, Lord, wilt bless the righteous with favor, wilt Thou compass him as with a shield. What does the Scripture tell us? The Scripture tells us that for those of us who look to the light of Jesus Christ and put our trust in Him, the Scripture tells us we can what? Rejoice. That sounds a whole lot better than darkness and dimness and anguish and trouble, doesn't it? We can rejoice. We can rejoice because in Jesus Christ, folks, not only do we find joy, but we find freedom. Notice what he said in verse 4 of chapter 9 of Isaiah. For thou hast broken the yoke of His burden. See, folks, Jesus Christ brings to us freedom. Turn over to Luke just for a minute. Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, in verses 18 and 19, it says this, in Luke 4, 18 and 19, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted. And notice what, what Luke says here. To preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty them that are bruised to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. What does Luke say? He says, listen, Jesus Christ brings freedom. Freedom from oppression. John, we can turn over to John for just a second. John chapter 8, and starting in verse 31, in John chapter 8, it says, Then Jesus said to those Jews which believed on Him, If you continue in My words, then are ye My disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth. What does He say? Look what Jesus says, And the truth shall make you free. They answered Him, we, have, we be Abraham's seed and we're never in bondage, which was absolutely preposterous for them to say because they spent much time in bondage under different nations, including a long history of time in Egypt. But they said, you know, we're, we're Abraham's seed. We've never been in bondage uh, to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin, and the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth ever. If the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. Isn't that a blessing, folks? From Jesus Christ, not only do we get the advantage of having joy in our life, to be able to rejoice instead of living in gloom and darkness and turmoil, but we get to live lives of freedom. Lives of freedom. Notice what it says then in, in, in verse 6 back in our passage in Isaiah. It says, For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. 
What is it that breaks the darkness? What is it that breaks through the gloom? What light is it that breaks through? It's the light of the birth of the Messiah. It's the light of the birth of Jesus Christ. The God of creation became a baby in a manger so that he could go to a cross and shed his blood to bring you and I freedom from sin. See, folks, we don't live in bondage to sin if we've trusted Jesus Christ as our Savior. We live in freedom today. No man desires to live in bondage. Every man desires to be free. That's why I think our nation is, is the greatest nation in the world because we believe in freedom. Despite the fact that many of those freedoms seem to be waning away today, but we are a nation that was founded on the ideals of freedom for all mankind. And man loves to be free. And Jesus Christ says, if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. You're free. Free from the bondage of sin. That's why when the announcement was made in the book of Luke in chapter 2, it says that they're bringing good tidings of great joy. Why were they bringing good tidings of great joy? Because out of a dark night, the light of the world was born into existence. That's why they were bringing good tidings of great joy. And it says the government will be upon his shoulder. That will be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom, folks, when Jesus Christ rules and reigns. What a blessing that will be. What a blessing we get because Jesus Christ stepped out of eternity and stepped into this world to be our Savior. We get great blessing from that. And in a couple moments, we'll talk about the glory of the Messiah. At this time, I want to make sure I'm on the right place. Justin is going to come sing, and then we're going to have him. Today we've looked at the darkness and dimness that was here on this earth. We looked at the blessings received from Jesus Christ, joy and freedom. And that brings us to our third point today, and that's the glory of the Messiah. As we continue back in Isaiah chapter 9, in Isaiah's description of Jesus Christ, we read these words, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And then he goes on to give us a description of Jesus Christ. He says, And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, <clears throat> the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. His name shall be called Wonderful. You know, the names of Jesus Christ describe His character to us. Longenbecker in his commentary says, a name does not just identify or distinguish a person, it expresses the very nature of His being. With that in mind, as Isaiah describes the names of Jesus Christ, what he will be called, he starts with wonderful. Wonderful. You know, we sing the song, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. Oh, how wonderful. Oh, how marvelous. And my song shall ever be. See, folks, Jesus Christ is wonderful. He takes me, a sinner 
condemned to an eternity in hell and loves me in that state. He doesn't love me once I'm all cleaned up, folks. He loves me while I'm still dirty. He loves me while my life is still full of sin. And that's when he loves me. Why? Because he is wonderful. He's wonderful. And Isaiah, in describing the character of Jesus Christ, reminds us that Jesus Christ is wonderful. Not only is he wonderful, folks, but he is counselor. Due to his omniscience, the fact that Jesus Christ knows everything, he is the perfect counselor. See, we can go to an earthly counselor, and that earthly counselor is still a human being. They can make mistakes in their counsel. You ever counsel your own children and realize after the counsel you gave them that wasn't the right counsel to give them? I can raise my hand. I've done that before, right? We all make mistakes. Sometimes we do things and we think right afterwards, as soon as it's done, boy, that was a dumb move, right? Because we make mistakes. We do. But Jesus Christ, he is a wonderful, perfect counselor. Romans chapter 11, in Romans 11, and starting in verse 33, it says this. It says, All the depth and the riches, of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. The question is asked, who can be his counselor? And it's a rhetorical question because obviously the answer is no one. Why? Because he is the perfect counselor. He is wonderful. He is his counselor. He is the mighty God. Jesus Christ himself said, all power is given to me in heaven and in earth. You know, folks, I'm thankful that the Savior that I love has all the power in this world. There is no man that can over, over, ever overcome his power, though men have tried. And men will continue to try all the way to the end of this world. Men will try to overcome the power of Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ will defend his power simply with his voice by speaking as he conquers this world and establishes eventually his kingdom here on this earth forever. What a wonderful thought. He is powerful. He is wonderful. He is counselor. He is the mighty God. And he is the everlasting Father. He is the Father of all eternity. Jesus Christ is described as the Alpha and Omega. The beginning and the ending. He is the great I Am. Job 19. If we go back to Job, we had our study in Job a while back, but Job uh, 19. Ah, get there in a minute here. Job 19, and uh, starting in verse 23. Job 19 and verse 23 says this. It says, Oh, that my words were now written, oh, that they were printed in a book. And you remember when we studied the book of Job, we talked about that fact that, that Job desired what he was about to say to be written down. And folks, it is. 
it is written down in this book. Job's desire was, what I'm about to say is of such great importance that I want it to be written down. And here's what he says in chapter 19 and verse 23. He says, Oh, that my words were now written, oh, that they were printed in a book, that they were graven with an iron pen and led in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that He shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. Job says what? He says, Jesus Christ is the Christ of all eternity. He says, I know my Redeemer lives, and when this earth comes to an end, He will still be alive. That's what Job says. Jesus Christ is wonderful. He is Counselor. He is the mighty God. He is the everlasting Father. And then the last thing I want to tie on to today is that He is the Prince of Peace. See, Isaiah 8 dealt with all the darkness and gloom and, and trouble that was here on the earth. And now we come to the end of the description of Isaiah, of Jesus Christ, and the final thing he has to say about his character is that he is the Prince of Peace. I believe that's not by accident. I believe that's, it. that's him looking back to what was said in chapter 8 and saying Jesus Christ is also the Prince of Peace peace. In the words of Luke 2 and verse 14, it says, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. It was the words of Luke 2 that challenged a poet who had suffered great adversity in life. It was a poet who had suffered from huge personal tragedy. And it was a poet who was looking at his nation that was suffering from a great civil war. And as he heard the words of Luke 2 in verse 14, his mind was taken to the fact that there was not peace on this earth. And so I just want to read to you just a, a portion here. I heard the bells on Christmas Day is a lesser known Christmas song and not generally the first to be requested around the Christmas tree. The lyrics were born out of painful circumstances, but as with other classic hymns, the story behind the song gives it gravity and drives home the message of hope and the power of God's marvelous plan. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow was one of America's greatest poets. You may know him as the author of Paul Revere's Ride, but he penned many other poems, novels, and anthologies, as well as translating popular foreign works into English. The most famous of his translations was Dante's The Divine Comedy. But Longfellow was born on February 27, 1807 in Portland. And upon his death, he was one of the few American poets to be buried in the Poets' Corner at Westminster Abbey. The time in between these events, as with most poets, was filled with plenty of writing, but in Longfellow's case, a lot of tragedy. His first wife, Mary Potter, died suddenly while Longfellow was overseas. After a long and difficult courtship, he married Frances Appleton in 1843, and the couple had six children. The marriage was exceptionally happy. However, the bliss was not to last. In 1861, while sealing envelopes with hot wax, a flame caught Francis' clothes on fire. 
Henry rushed to her aid and tried to smother the flames, but by the time the fire was out, Francis had been burned beyond recovery and died the next day. Longfellow fell into a deep, deep depression at the loss of his second wife and threw himself into his work, writing. That's all he knew. Longfellow was a staunch abolitionist, and of course this took us into the period of the Civil War. So when the Civil War came, his oldest son Charlie was eager to do his part. As a second lieutenant, interestingly enough, Charlie fought in the Battle of Chancellorsville here in Virginia and narrowly dodged the Battle of Gettysburg by coming down with typhoid fever. He was back in the fight by August of 1863 when he was wounded in battle. While dining at home on December 1st, 1863, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow received a telegram that his son had been severely wounded four days earlier and may not live. On November 27, 1863, Charlie was shot through the left shoulder with the bullet exiting under his right shoulder blade and it caught part of his spine. Longfellow's son survived his injury but was brought home for what would be a very extended recovery. So as that Christmas came that year, Longfellow found himself staring down a Christmas season with no wife, five children, and one child near death, and a civil war raging all around him. The world was tearing itself apart in his mind. There didn't seem to be much space for peace on earth. And so with that, when he heard the words of Luke 2.14, he penned a poem. And that poem was entitled Christmas Bells. And it's from that poem that we get our song, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. But there's two verses that aren't in the Christmas song we sing because two of the verses dealt with the Civil War. So here's the poem that Longfellow penned. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play. And wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And thought... How as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing, singing on the way, the world revolved from night to day. A voice of chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And then these two verses that aren't in our hymnal today. Then from each black accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south. And with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the heartstones of a continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in his discouragement and in his depression, he wrote this verse. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And then he penned the last verse. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. See, folks, Longfellow came to an understanding 
And the understanding was it didn't matter how dark it seemed, how discouraged I was, what was going on in the entire continent around me, it didn't matter because Jesus Christ sits on the throne and he's alive. And in the end, folks, and it may not be till the very end, but in the end, right will prevail and wrong will fail. You know, I take great, I take great hope in that, folks, because I get very discouraged when I watch the news. I get very discouraged of what's going on in our nation and the worlds around us. And when I think about the fact that Jesus Christ is on the throne and that wrong is going to fail and right is going to prevail, that brings what? Light at the end of the tunnel. Darkness, dimness, turmoil, anguish. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed as we come to the end of the message today. Folks, I listen to enough prayer requests at church and get enough phone calls and text messages during the week to know that we struggle. We struggle with a lot of things in life. We have days that are dark. We have days that are full of turmoil. We have days that are chaotic. The world, it seems, is just crumbling all around us. Our nation and the, and the principles we we stood for as we began our nation, seem to be crumbling all around us. And sometimes it just doesn't seem like there's light at the end of the tunnel. But there is. Because Jesus Christ is alive. And Jesus Christ will return. And he will establish his kingdom forever. And so, folks, we can take great hope in that. And so as you enter this Christmas season, as Longfellow did, he entered it discouraged beyond belief. But he came out with hope. And that hope gave us one of the songs that we sing almost every year at Christmas. I heard the bells on Christmas Day. Let's stand with our heads bowed and eyes closed. I'm going to ask Elizabeth just to play. Maybe the Lord spoke to your heart and you need to spend some time in prayer at the altar. We wait just for a moment this morning.